Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to welcome back to the show author Tom Westcott to further discuss the material in his book Ripper Confidential, New Research on the Whitechapel Murders. Part 1 of our interview focused mainly on the murder of Polly Nichols in Bucks Row with a little bonus episode on the Goldstone Street Graffito. And now part two of our conversation will in the main be about the murder of Elizabeth Stride in Duffield's Yard in Burner Street, the first of the double event on September 30th, 1888. We welcome Tom Westcott back to the show. Hello, Tom. Well, hey, Mingus the Mercosoles. How the hell are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Man, I'm, it's awesome. I'm in Oklahoma, you know, uh, not in Texas right now, so no hurricanes. I'm doing great. It rained a lot here in Kansas, but it's coming over from Colorado, so. Right. Yeah, we didn't get that either this week, you know. It's probably on, probably on its way, though. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I can take some rain. I can take some rain. All of us can. In the That's Midwest. how I wash my car. I don't it, use car washes. Um, just If it's going to rain, I, I take my car out of the garage and I leave it in the driveway and let nature clean my car for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I do the same thing, yeah. The way to be. Absolutely. Now, anyone who has been involved in Ripperology over the last 20 years following the Casebook message boards or reading the various Ripper magazines will know that the murder of Elizabeth Stride is one of the topics that you have chiefly focused on. Correct. What is it about the Dutfield Yard murder that captured your interest above all of the others? Well, you know, that's a good question. It, it did start a very, very long time ago. Um, what it was, was a uh, long time ago, I was interested in the suspect, Rosalind Deonston or Robert Deonston Stevenson. Um, at the time, so was Howard Brown, the, uh, you know, of course, uh, webmaster of jtrforms.com and Ivor Edwards and some others. We were really interested in this suspect, and um, we were studying him, but then, you know, other research came out that showed he was not Jack the Ripper, Okay. And that's when I said, okay, you know what? I'm doing this all wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking at suspects anymore. I'm going to start fresh in my research of the case at the beginning and kind of work my way forward. And that's what I started doing. But I had in my mind um, at the time the idea that if Jack the Ripper screwed up and got you know um, noticed or there was a chance of identifying him, and it had to have happened the night of the double event. And I still believe that. So I started paying a particular interest to the double event. It was just going to be a short-term research project where I was going to tear apart all the information and the you know murders of Stride and Eddowes and really look at them objectively. Um, and I do mean objectively. You know, that was the idea. And it's like I got stuck on stride and just kind of stayed there for a long time didn't even make it to Edo. so i'm not you know of course i'm pretty well read on the Edo's murder but what i'm saying is it, it something about it caught my interest and uh and, and that be, that is remains to this day in a chief area of interest for me and i think anyone you know who has studied the case uh for any length of time i don't care who they are um you know they're well-rounded um you know, authorities on the case and can, but if you, if you sit down and ask him, go, okay, what are the one or two areas that just really grab you that you look out close, closer to than others? 
um, if it's not already obvious from their work, they'll, they'll be able to tell you something. You know, like I think with Neil Bell, um, he really ended up just entering the world of the Victorian policeman, and that became his area of expertise, and you see that reflected in his work. Um, you know, for other people, it's, it's they get latched onto a suspect, you know, but it, you'll notice there's some other people on the casebook right now um, who are just really intrigued by the Bucks Row murder in the same way I am by the Stride murder. And it was really, you know, and I stuck with the Stride murder, and, and, and now I feel like I've done as much with it as I can, so then I turned my focus also towards the murder of Polly Nichols. Well, I went back before that and banked holiday murders and started tearing apart the early murders, and then and I threw away all my preconceived notions because I had a bunch of them. Um, and, uh, and I started from scratch working my way forward, and one of the things a lot of people might not realize if they read my books is they think, oh, well, Tom's biased. He believes this. And that. He believes, for instance, that Martha Tabern is a Ripper victim, and he's trying to prove his bias. The reality is, if anyone read my old Ripper Notes article, which is on Casebook, called Old Wounds, about the Polly Nichols murder, at that time, I was convinced Martha Tabern was not a Ripper victim. So my own research later on forced me to actually change my mind on a long-held belief. And I think that's the that's the healthiest thing a researcher can do, is be willing and able to change their mind um, with their own research, if not the research of other people, but be willing to do. Like, I'm ready and willing right now to believe James Maybrick was Jack the Ripper in a heartbeat, if providing um, you provide me with something hard uh, in, in the way of proof and not just supposition. Same with Aaron Kosminski, Francis Tumblety. Uh, Mike Holly's um, amazing and ongoing research um, constantly forces us to reassess what we think we know about Tumbleton. That doesn't mean it convinces us he's Jack the Ripper, but it means some of the old arguments we throw out are just maybe not as good as they once were. And that's good stuff. I like that. That excites me because um, I, I love having my views and mind changed by actual facts and evidence and documentation. It's not annoying to me. It's refreshing and so but i don't think that's true of everyone so you it's a minefield of ego and ripperology but for uh, why did i like stride i don't know she was ignored at the time at the time i started my stride research no one talked about her um everyone was obsessed with mary kelly mary kelly and uh and i said well what about this murder over here this is this is interesting where it happened the people in the in the the building where it happened the fact she wasn't mutilated, um, the little triage in the street um, of Israel Swartz and the two other men, and all the different witness stuff. I just, it was very intriguing. And I spent years looking at it from every angle, challenging every idea I had, um, and uh, not trying to prove myself right on anything, um, just trying to figure out what the hell happened there that night. And no one else was or is really, in my opinion, doing that. Um, I understand Alex Chisholm published a book in 08 on the Stride murder, which, um, you know, uh, I loved reading that book. I disagree with most of it, but I, it's, a, it's a fun read. It's a good read. He did a lot of great research that helped me out, especially in those early years. Um, but by focusing on this area of the case, I believe I've come up with some 
new stuff and very logical and sensible answers to questions that apparently still seem to plague people. Also, I've noticed it's a blind spot for some of the best writers and authorities in the case. They just get everything wrong when they write <laughs> Stride Murder, and I don't know why, but they do. Um, so my original intention, if people remember when I came out with Bank Holiday Murders, my next book was to be called The Burner Street Mystery. And my intention was for it to be another 200-page book, similar to Bank Holiday Murders, um, called The Burner Street Mystery. But then when I was working on that, I, I said, well, I've got all this other non-stride stuff, like my old essays and some new stuff I wanted to work on. Like, I really wanted to do a discursive write-up on a Goulston Street graffito, but you can't put that in a stride book. So I, my thought was publish Burner Street Mystery in paperback and Kindle, and then do a, you know, like a small a Kindle um, edition only of some of my essays, along with a couple new essays. But one thing I learned after publishing Bank Holiday Murders was how many people really like hard copy. They like having a hard hardcover or a paperback. You know, they're just not into the Kindle thing, right? So then I got the idea, hey, why not just make it one big book? And so that's how Ripper Confidential came together. Is it's, It is, I mean, if you look at it, and here I think page 86 to 269, is all this stride Yeah, stuff. that's what I was going to say. You, you take over 150 pages of your new book discussing several aspect of, aspects of the stride meter. And um, you said Alex Chisholm. Did you mean David Yost? Or? That's probably what I meant. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's been a lot of years. Those two, um, they've done a lot of work together, and they do run together in my mind. I meant Dave Yost. My apologies to Dave. Um, but out, outside, of, outside of his book... Your more than 150 pages must be the most pages ever devoted in a single book <clears throat> to the specifics of the Stride murder case. Um, right, and the most accurate. That's correct. And and leaving out all the biography that Dave Yost's book has on Stride. And, and I want to stress again to our listeners who maybe don't have the Bank Holiday Murders or Ripper Confidential... These aren't your run-of-the-mill Ripper books. I mean, there are several suspect books out there that focus entirely on a single suspect like Kosminski or Tumblety and Druitt, but Tom's books are unique in how you zero in in the Bank Holiday murders on the pre-C5 murders. And then in Ripper Confidential, the vast majority of that book is focusing on just two of the canonical five murders and uh, mm -hmm. like you had said you know 150 plus pages just on the elizabeth stride murder right so it it's and and like i said it's unique in ripperology to have to to have an author put a microscope on a single one of the murder cases like you do so well you know i didn't invent that per se but um you know because a, a fellow who again his name skips me I uh, wrote a really neat book um, focusing in on, uh, what was it, Francis Coles? Uh, quite some good God. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Carity Nell. Carity Nell, yeah. Right. And, uh, and you know, and I, and I, I champion that stuff. I, I would love to see more of that. Um, me personally as a reader, you know, because, you know, just because I, I, I only write because I'm first and foremost a reader. Um, 
I read the journals. I always have. I read the you know books that don't suck, which are getting fewer and fewer. And I would love to see, like for instance, if Rob Clack, um, Neil Bell wanted to put out a book of their collected essays, and they want to update some stuff, add some stuff. Boom, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can think of a handful of other people who've written relatively, you know, prolifically over the last twenty years in the journals. Uh, and that's not because you got to understand, with the exception of ripperologists, man, these journals are defunct. Um, you know what I'm saying? You're, so you're not. That's what I did. I took my old stuff. I updated it, corrected some things, shortened a lot of it, trimmed a lot of fat, and that's what I put in the book. And then I wrote it's, you know, and I've read. I have a review that came up this last week on Amazon that just said it was a bunch of my old essays, but. And if, a lot of the, most of this book is actually over fifty percent is new stuff. The new material in Ripper Confidential um, equals more page count than Bank Holiday Murders. So, and I'm selling it for like the same cost. Uh, you know, so it's actually you're getting as much or more new material as Bank Holiday Murders, plus all the older stuff updated that will be new to ninety five percent of my readers. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's, you know, I knew what I was doing and it wasn't a, uh, you know, st- I was just throwing stuff together. Like in my Burner Street Mystery section, which is section two of the book, I've got my uh, Jack and the Grapestock, Murder in the Neighborhood, and, um, those were written for Ripper Notes, um, years and years and years ago when Dan Norder was editor. And Ripper Notes, uh, is no more, unfortunately. It's a, a great print journal. Uh, then Exonerating Michael Kidney, and Burn the Streets Rugs Gallery, which was the very first um, to look at, uh, you know, that and the, well, the episode or the issue that followed it had part two where I looked at Albert Backard as a potential killer of Stride, uh, first to do so. And uh, that's last year became the subject of a book by Mick Priestley, um, which, where he puts, uh, he names the Ripper as Albert Backard. Um, and he was unaware of my article at that time, but that just underscores how hard these are for people to find if you don't put them in book form, because that's honestly the way people read is is books. And um, so I wanted these to. I thought they were good enough to find a new audience. But the most important stuff, in my opinion, in Ripper Confidential, in particular the Stride, is the all new stuff that I've written for it that, honestly, I couldn't have written 10 years ago. I could not have. It was impossible. I didn't have the uh, quite the insight yet. Because, uh, like, Stuart Evans talks about, you've got to, in, it takes time to internalize. You've got to spend a lot of time with material and, and think, look at it from every conceivable angle and just let it kind of stew and simmer in your brain, I think, before certain ideas are going to come to you. It doesn't just happen immediately. And that's why I'm I'm really glad I did wait. I didn't write a book ten years ago or fifteen years ago. It would have sucked. Um, I don't think I had the stuff to bring until recent years, and that's because I had to internalize stuff over a long period of time. Maybe I'm slower than other people. That's possible. But um, in my opinion, my most important stuff on stride in this book appears. In the chapters, um, What Fanny Didn't See, New Insights on Crucial Witnesses, Smith, Brown, and Mortimer, and then uh, Israel Swartz, A Critical Analysis. 
And I'm not suggesting everyone skip over the other stuff. That's all good too. But um, I was had a lot of fun writing those, um, and you know, putting them together. And not all essays are fun to write. These two were very fun for me to write. Exciting. It was like it took me back in time to the excitement that I had 15 years ago researching and writing this stuff. And um, putting it together. But what what excited me is I felt like I had hit on some actual truths that are in the material. Because some of this is research that's only come out in recent years. It didn't exist. You know, back when Paul Begg was writing his first book, Martin Fido, they didn't have this stuff. They didn't have Internet databases, digitized papers from all over the world. They didn't have this stuff to work with. But they wrote the books that today continue to be the most influential books in the field. Um, the downside to that, again, is that means new readers are being exposed to, you know, old old information, um, incomplete information. Mm-hmm. So I think it's up for us, to us current, you know, people in the field to, you know, say, here's the new stuff that's come out, and here's how it might change our perspective. And in doing so, you answer a lot of the niggling questions that have grown over the years. And I try to do that in this book. Like, why was she holding the caches? You know, why is her scarf tight and pulled to one side? Um, was her knife, as so many authors, and I mean good authors, have attested, most recent, I think, was Donald Rumbelow in his last updated version. They believe, there's a genuine belief that uh, Liz Stride was killed with a dull knife. That right. was different. I, I want to go through all of those myths. Um, you got all Okay. Before you get into uh, and and then get into the Fanny Mortimer, I mean the the um, what Fanny didn't see and Smith Brown and Mortimer in the Israel Schwartz sections, it'll be helpful for our listeners who who only know of the Stride case from the myths, um, starting with uh, the location of the murder being. Um, uh, one of the most public and you know inconvenient spots where the Ripper would choose a victim as being one of the reasons why she might not be a Ripper victim. So if you could, it'd be helpful for you to go through some of those, some of the arguments that are that, uh, against Stride being a Ripper victim and why you think those are all myths. Well, yeah, one of them being the location, that's a persistent one. Which is, uh, of course, that people say, well, you know, if the Burner Street Club was very busy, it had open windows, there were people laughing and singing, um, it's a terrible place to commit a murder. And, of course, that's correct. I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong. Um, anytime you're, you, you know, if it's, if why murder is bad, first of all, you shouldn't do it. Um, but for people who do do it, if they're doing it out, out of doors, um, in a public place, that's that's not a good location. But what their argument is, is that the location is so bad that Jack the Ripper would not have chosen it. And I that just befuddles me, because we're talking about a guy who just a couple weeks earlier was in the backyard of Hanbury Street uh, at dawn, uh, murdering a woman underneath 17 windows, behind which people were soon or presently waking up. And what do you do when you wake up? You look out your window. What's the next thing you do? You put on your shoes and you go downstairs to the loo. And there was Jack the Ripper, you know, butchering up Annie Chapman and doing all sorts of things. And right next to a door. He Now, you'll notice where he killed Annie Chapman 
was right next to the door. So he would have an advantage. If someone were coming out that door, he would see them before they saw him. And I do believe he was prepared for that, someone to come out, and he had in mind a, and a, you know, what to do with that individual to get past them to flee through the building and out into the street. Um, well, the same thing with Liz Stride. She was killed right inside the gateway in the shadows. Uh, now, it was much, much darker there than it was in Hanbury Street, much darker. Um, and the same thing, if someone had come out the side door of the building, he would see them before they could see him. In fact, they wouldn't have been able to see his face. If someone came through the gateway like Dean Schutz would do, he would uh, see them before they saw him because of the open gateway door. Um, and he had in mind a plan to escape out into the street and run away. I'm not saying he was going to stab them. I don't know what his plan was because he never had to use it. We don't know. But he had one. He would have had one. So the murder, the location of the Stride murder and the Chapman murder were extremely similar. Uh, he didn't take her into the de depth of the backyard. That, people say that would have been a safer thing. That would not have been a safer thing. That would have been made it much harder for him to escape. He wanted to be right next to the door that provided his escape. And, uh, and in both cases, that's precisely what he did. The, uh, I think the Polly Nichols, where she was murdered, of course, he could hear or see someone coming from either direction, um, and he could flee the opposite way. All of these were precarious, They're, including Mary Kelly. Yeah, she was killed indoor, but man, now if he had just slit Mary Kelly's throat and left, I would say that is the safest, easiest murder he could have done, but he didn't do that. Of course, he, he stayed there for probably two hours working on her. But again, there was one way in, the door. And, you know, he was prepared. I don't know how prepared he was in Mary Kelly's case because I believe he was butt naked. Um, so, uh, but if someone had came in, my guess is his plan was to quickly kill them, silence them, get dressed and leave. But I think that Mary, because of what we see he inflicted on Mary Kelly, I think that was possibly the most dangerous of all the murders. Um, certainly more so than Liz Stride. Now, people talk about the people singing above. Most of the people had gone home by 1 a.m. Um, there were 50 or so people remaining, which is quite a bit. They were making a lot of noise. And, in fact, you know, they, you know that might explain why Stride was not mutilated, why he did not linger at her murder site. I'm not personally um, convinced that, that he was uh, interrupted or that he was freaked out by the noise and decided to make it a quick kill and split. But because um, there's another option that never gets discussed, and that is that he went out that night with the plan to uh, kill two women. And if so, he couldn't be very bloodied by the first. Mm -hmm. So um, that might explain her lack of abdominal injuries and, and why um, Eddowes was more brutally murdered, um, is that that was his plan. And that, that plan was, in fact, suggested during the press following Annie Chapman's murder, where rumors circulated that two women had been murdered. And that graffiti had been written on a wall. That's what that was the rumor circulating following Annie Chapman's murder. It never happened, but it did happen um, that night because there were in fact two women murdered and graffiti found on a wall. So that that may have been the Ripper bringing his own mythology to life, saying, "I can't, you know, I like that idea you gave me, and I'm going to make that happen." Um, so that's another possibility that I don't think gets considered enough. Mm -hmm. Now, you say that not very many people were around in the club at the time of her death. 
but then you also go through her being seen with maybe up to four different men in, in like the 90 minutes prior to her murder. Um, not including broad shouldered man, which, uh, and, and your, um, explanation of him, I, I, I found was really interesting and something I don't believe I'd ever heard before, uh, of possibly you throw out a couple of, uh, candidates for broad-shouldered man, one of them being Moore Siegel, as maybe uh, trying to enter into the yard, being annoyed that there was a prostitute there soliciting, and just trying to physically remove her from his his road um, right. and toss her out of the club or out of the entrance to the, you know, you know what I mean. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. So uh, the the amount of, of witnesses and the amount of men she... Um, she was seen with that night also kind of puts lie to the myth that people uh, have suggested that maybe she possibly wasn't soliciting that evening and that um, her murder could have been a domestic so would you go into that a little bit for us sure well you know I think because the the men she was seen with were very different looking, um, different hats, and that's important. Like today, we would if we said we didn't see the man, but we saw his car, and we described a woman getting into four different cars, we would not assume that that was the same man with four different cars. Well, in 1888, they didn't have cars, but they did have hats, and that was a status symbol um, or, a, or a symbol of personal expression or of indeed what you did for a living. Um, hats were very important. So... Stride being seen with a man with different hats, different ages, sizes, all of this indicate to me she was not on a date. Um, you know, she was soliciting. Also, you know, she was a practicing prostitute. So that's another good. Re- and it was, you know, there's no reason that I've ever seen that to believe she was not actively soliciting. That's what she did for a living. And um, so, uh, you know, there's that. And then a broad shoulder man. You know, he was he was like a new toy for reprologists. He he we didn't know Swartz or these other characters existed until Stephen Knight in the seventies. It wasn't until the eighties that more responsible authors really started discussing Israel Schwartz, um, and and that he became a focus for discussion and um, somehow got promoted along the way to key witness in the case. And somehow, broad shoulder man, everyone decided was the killer of Stride. And, I, you know, and I've never been sold on that because the contemporary investigators were not at all sold on that, which I discuss in the book. Um, and what we see broad shoulder man do, if we read what Swanson gives us, is he's walking along. That's all. And then he stops and speaks to a woman. Well, he wouldn't have even seen Stride unless she spoke first. That, again, is, the, is you know, sounds like a woman soliciting. He did not like what he heard or she was blocking his way, as I particularly think might be the case, because he doesn't grab her and drag her along. He doesn't push her back into the gateway and attack her. He attempts to remove her from the gateway. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why would he do that if he was not a club man? And then you ask yourself, who was walking that route around that time and who, who returned via the gateway around that time? And that was Morris Eagle. Um, he had walked his lady friend home and had returned, had gone through the gateway and entered that way. 
Um, people in the club said he was the last to come in, and uh, all and Morris Eagle's actions all occurred within five minutes of Israel Swartz witnessing a man ahead of him stop and speak to a woman, um, call out names to him, and go inside. And why couldn't that have been Morris Eagle? And another suggestion is because of the way people described Morris's reaction when he saw the body in the yard. Um, he gave a visual, visible reaction. I assume everyone from the club who went outside to look at the body gave a visible and, and audible reaction, but Morris Eagle stuck out. That's interesting to me. Is that because he, he was thinking, oh, my God, that's the woman I just saw, you know, 15 minutes ago. Um, now, this is all supposition, but I'm just pointing out that we never, there's no description of, of broad shoulder man pulling out a knife or attempting to murder Stride. This is an, that's an assumption that has solidified into fact for so many people who say, well, BS Man was Stride's killer, and BS Man behaved in a way that is different from Jack the Ripper's. Therefore, she's not a Ripper victim. And I'm like, you know, slow down, because we don't know he's the killer. Um, we don't know. And also, I don't know that he... Did he behave differently than Jack the Ripper? Because in the case of Hanbury Street, we have Albert Kadosh listening to Annie Chapman get manhandled and bumped against a fence. We hear voices. Um, and uh, that doesn't sound a whole lot different from what Israel Swartz visibly saw in Burner Street. But um, so, yeah, I think uh, we need to slow down a little bit and not assume any of that is accurate or correct, um, you know, and base conclusions off of that is my point. The only thing you, we can really make base conclusions off of is the medical evidence because the witness evidence is all over the place. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to stop there because I assume you have another question coming up. I don't want to get into James Brown and all of that and, and, and ca unless uh, in case you should, you know, want to bring that up yourself, Jonathan. Um, we actually had a listener question about broad-shouldered man, and, and it came from CD on the Casebook message boards. I'm in Seeds. What's up, Seed? <laughs> And uh, he asks, how confident was Swanson in his belief that there might have been sufficient time for another man to come along after Schwartz's sighting of Broad Shoulder Man and that that man was, in fact, Stride's real killer? Well, you know, I, don't, you know, I think we all know about the same, uh, you know, about Swanson, as, except for maybe Adam Wood. We're waiting on that book. But uh, the October 19th report, and I talk about that in my book in a new way. I point out that this is not a dry you know, recital of facts. It is, in fact, a report intended to be submitted to his superiors. Therefore, it is to paint a picture of, look how busy we are and look what we're achieving. Um, and that's why you know he points to certain witnesses like uh, Fanny Mortimer and Matthew Packer, and all these people who made the papers, because he assumes they, they know who these individuals are and have questions about them. Uh, when it comes to the witnesses, uh, Lewindy and Schwartz, um, you know, he cast doubt on both of them, and rightfully so. Uh, Lewindy was, uh, time-wise, was more likely to have seen a woman with the killer, but he couldn't attest for certain that he saw either Eddowes or, therefore, her killer. Israel Swartz was certain the woman he saw was Stride, but because of the 15 minutes lapse in time, um, there was no way to be certain that he saw that BS Man was her killer. And that, that makes perfect sense. And, in fact, when I um, go into my dis discussion of James Brown, um, I kind of underscore that point because it looks like James Brown, in fact, 
saw stride after Iswell Schwartz had fled the scene. Right. Um, go ahead and go into that for us. Well, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, in the 80s when authors like Paul Begg were starting out, the newspaper it seems they had the most ready access to from 1888 was the Times. Unfortunately, the Times is often uh, the least accurate or uh, on the Ripper murders or offers the least coverage because that's not, they were a very conservative paper. Um, they didn't, I don't know that they were as keen to get into all the, you know, gruesome details and the sensationalism like some of the other papers were. But now we have access to lots of papers. So I, and one of the great things about an, a, an essay, like a book like mine, where you can go into great detail on a given point is I can lay out for my readers, here's how I came to this conclusion. And I present um, from, I think, what, four or five different newspapers who were at the inquest, here's how they covered what James Brown had to say. And when I did this, uh, you know, when I was reading all this, it occurred to me, oh, my God, he did not, James Brown did not say he witnessed stride with Overcoat Man at 1245, as appears in every Ripper book. He says he left his house at 1245. And then, I went, and then he also gives another time frame. He said he spent three or four minutes in the Chandler shop buying his dinner. Um, he also, you know, he knows when he returned home because apparently he had a clock in his house. So from all of this, I was like, okay, he's probably p pretty accurate in the times from when he was around a clock, such as his house and the Chandler shop. The rest have to be estimated. But if he left his home at 12.45, took a minute or two to walk to the Chandler shop, spent three or four minutes in there and then left and walked and, and passed Stride with Overcoat Man, that puts the sighting of Stride with Overcoat Man at about 12.51, 12.52. Um, so therefore, you know, roughly eight minutes before her body was discovered. That makes Overcoat Man the likely murderer of Stride. Not guaranteed, because, you know, there's still that that time frame. But, uh, the likely murderer of Stride. And then when we look at the description of him with the long coat and the location of them being just around the corner of the board school, um, the same spot where Israel Swartz had earlier seen um, the man we know as Pipe Man, who had a similar coat, um, I'm like, I think uh, James Brown and Israel Swartz both, both witnessed the same man. Pipe Man and Overcoat Man would be the same guy. And BS Man is gone. Israel Swartz is gone. And that leaves uh, Overcoat Man slash Pipe Man as the likely murderer of Liz Stride. Um, now, James Brown um, identified Liz Stride's body at the mortuary by her, by her face, um, as opposed correct. to her clothes. And there are some correct. discrepancies... And it's not just with James Brown, but it's with a lot of these witness sightings as to what she was wearing, whether she had a flower in her jacket. Some said she, right. they saw one, some said they didn't. So, um, in a, a, a lot of these, it's, it, it could be argued that the person that they witnessed wasn't Liz Stride, if, if you're going back up by their clothing. Um, Correct. But in your book, you argue that a lot of these witnesses who could they could have been mistaken about her clothing, um, but but yet because they because they saw her her body her face and commented specifically about 
her her face at the mortuary, you're pretty confident right. that they did in fact see Stride, not someone else. Well, you know, uh, to me, it's like one of the reasons why Henry Smith says uh, Joseph Lewindy he it was an honest witness in his opinion was because of the the fact that Lewindy. Um, did not sensationalize what he saw. He did not express absolute certainty over things that reasonably he couldn't have been certain about. And that that told you he was an honest witness. Now, James Brown said he was almost certain the woman he saw was Liz Stride. That's an honest answer. Um, now, we cannot be any more certain than the witness himself, and I say that in the book, which means I can't sit here and say, James Brown with absolute certainly certainty saw Liz Stride because he didn't feel that way. Um, but, you know, you, you have your, your – your, there's no reasonable doubt to assume he saw anyone else because there is no other young uh, woman in the street, and I address that in my book, because there's the myth – Paul Baig mentions it in his book. There's the supposed young couple who were standing there. I presented an interview with the young woman herself that shows her and her young beau had been on the street much earlier. Um, and we're nowhere near that area at the time Brown and Israel Swartz happened by. So, and Liz Stride also had a pretty unique face, um, as we all know. And, uh, you know, she didn't have a common face. So, based upon this, if James Brown is almost certain that he saw Liz Stride, then we can be almost certain that he did, and, and he almost certainly saw her with her killer. And that killer was not Broad Shoulder Man. Um, I want to address the uh the knife um issue that comes up when people intend in to argue that stride wasn't a ripper victim that's that's another one of the myths you tackle in your book well and it's a big myth that's going to be persistent because it's mentioned in books such as the jack the ripper a to z that she was killed with a different knife than uh, edo's and i believe martin fido wrote that section because i don't think i've ever seen paul Begg say in his own individual work, that that was the case. Um, uh, Don Rumbelow, uh believes, you know, in his latest book, um, mentions that Stride was killed with a dull knife or a knife different from that kill. And that is not true. Um, the knife that killed Stride was a very sharp knife on its blade edge, as we know, because in that one strike across her throat, it, you know, it killed her, and it also cut through her scarf, nicked her scarf. That's a sharp blade. Um, we don't know if the tip of the point, the tip of the knife, the point of the knife was sharp because she was never stabbed. That's the only way we could tell that. The confusion comes about because at the inquest, they uh, had a wit- young witness named Thomas Corum, who the day after the murders, you know, and the light of day on a different street found a dulled, busted knife that had stains of blood on it. And they determined this would not have been related to the murder. Um, it, was, it sounds like it was just a knife that was no good to its owner anymore because it was bent and dulled, and he threw it, just he tossed it down. Um, but it had nothing to do with the stride murder at all. But because it's talked about at the inquest, um, it, it somehow gets confused with the knife that actually killed Liz Stride. Um, in fact, one of the doctors said he'd be surprised if that knife were the murder weapon based on what he'd seen. So all we know about the knife that killed Stride is that it was sharp. We do not know any more about it than that. So we can't say it's the same knife that killed Eddowes or that it's any different. We have no reason to believe it's any different. 
nor is there anything to point to the two and say they had to be the same. Does that make sense? We just know that both knives were, in fact, sharp, and they were used um, you know, in less than an hour within each other and for the same purposes. And doesn't the um, right or left-handedness of the killer also come into play uh, with the stride murder? Uh, not anymore. It did in the early 20s. Um, I think it was Leonard Matters published his book. He was the first to suggest Stride was not a Ripper victim, but he, he did it because he thought she was killed by a right-handed killer and that all the other victims were killed by a left-handed killer. Now, along over the years, we've done away with those myths, and I don't think there's anyone out there on, on either side of the Stride debate who will argue that she was killed by a, a different hand than all the other victims. They're all right-handed murders. Um, so, but the point being is that due to misunderstanding of the evidence and information, we've had a hundred years of writers trying to argue that Stride was different because by the time the Donald Rumbelows and the Paul Beggs came along, there was already this idea that Stride was not a Ripper victim. And it comes about due to the idea that she alone was killed by a right-handed killer and everyone else was killed by a left-handed. But that idea was already there. So then they went looking for other reasons why she might not be. Uh, and, and there's really only one, and I mean one, reason to question, and, and, and she, it should be questioned. I'm not 100% convinced Stride was a Ripper victim. Let me get that right. Um, she was not abdominally mutilated. That's a fact. And that is different um, from every other, you know, Polly Nichols, abdominally mutilated, Annie Chapman, on down the and uh, so, you know, but like Philip Sugden says, that's not reason to, you know, to, to kick her out of the pram, you know. Um, that by itself does not point to a different killer. Whoever killed Stride, whether it was Jack the Ripper or not, had killed before and in the same way because um, it's extraordinarily rare that you find a murderer um, who kills a woman with a single strike across the neck in the pitch dark and is confident enough that she is dead that he turns around and leaves. Because he's clearly not angry or he would have stabbed her 30 times or beat her up. N there's no evidence of any of that. This was a quick kill by someone who knew exactly what he was doing and got away with it and who had confidence in himself that this that he'd be able to do this. That is not an average murder. It's certainly not a domestic killing. As you mentioned earlier, there was, you know, when people say domestic killing, they mean Michael Kidney, um, who was suggested by A.P. Wolf and other authors. And I think even Stuart Evans had said hey, Michael Kidney was the probable killer of Stride. Um, Bob Hinton, in his excellent book, From Hell, and Bob Hinton spent you know, a, a quality amount of time looking at the Stride murder, and he did a good job of it, but... Um, he, I mean, a number of authors name Michael Kidney as the killer of Stride, and I go to great lengths in my essay and then again in this book to uh, point out that, no, he was not the killer of Stride. He couldn't have been. Um, he certainly was not BS man. Howard Brown, in fact, uh, years ago sent me a newspaper illustration of Michael Kidney that showed what he looked like with his big old stash. And here's BS man with a small, there's no way those are the same guy. If Michael Kidney had killed Stride, you can bet he would have beat her up and probably stabbed her a bunch of times because he would have been drunk and he would have been angry and he would have been out for blood. Um, but Michael Kidney was not the killer of Stride. He provided an alibi. He did not know where she was that night. He had not shown up 
and her, uh, you know, um, Flower and Dean Street address, uh, where where he knew she would be. He did not show up there looking for her. Um, he's just, you know, it's just, he's a patsy here. There's nothing about. He, in fact, he was devastated after her death. He would roar into the police station drunk, demanding justice. Uh, he went out, you know, trying to find the killer himself. You know, this guy was brokenhearted over the death of her. And I'm not saying he was a good man because I do believe he did abuse her, but uh, he certainly did not kill her. And you also argue against the uh, repeated notion that he kept her padlocked in a room and uh, basically held her prisoner. Um, So I want you to address that, and also back when you had just said that uh, Michael Kidney supplied an alibi to to the police, that was another listener question, and you do address this in your book, but you don't, you don't, you you suppose um, that he provided an alibi to the police because they basically uh, interviewed all of her close associates, so you kind of assume that Kidney was on the top of that list, right? Well, I don't assume it. I mean, uh, he was her closest associate. Um, we know for a fact the police um, spent time with Kidney. He, he, he was at the inquest. Um, so he was provided to the coroner as a witness. That only comes about because the police have interrogated and investigated you. Um, he would have been their chief suspect, uh, just as Joseph Barnett in the case of Kelly, John Kelly in the case of Eddowes, etc., um, Michael Kidney. Uh, so when they say her, you know, uh, closest associates provided an alibi and were cleared, chief amongst them, because they weren't looking for some old lady as the killer, they were looking for someone just like Michael Kidney. Um, they cleared him. Um, and uh, now, do we have it in black and white? Michael Kidney was cleared as the killer? No, but we don't have that for anybody. Um, you just, again, who were her closest associates? Michael Kidney. Did the police have access to him? We know for a fact he, they did because uh, there he was at the inquest. We do have him in a police station. He was familiar with them. Um, they talked, would have talked to him on more than one occasion about um, Liz Stride, about her life, about who, who were her close associates. How do you know that? You ask people like Michael Kidney and, the, and the, her friends at the you know, at, uh, Flower and Dean Street. That's how you find out that information. So, yeah, he would have been the first, and they would have wanted a very solid alibi for someone like him, and they apparently received it. So um, that's the end of Michael Kidney right there. And, again, there's no evidence that he knew where she was. He didn't go looking for her. That was the argument all these authors made. He went looking for her. Well, if he did that, he would have first shown up at the Flower and Dean Street address, which he did not do. And... um, that's because I, I want to see Liz. Where is she? Oh, she's out and about. You know, if they had said he came looking for her, I'd start to wonder if maybe he didn't kill her. Um, but then you look at the crime scene evidence. There, that's not a domestic murder by any stretch of the imagination. What happened to Stride that night was not a domestic murder. Um, it just doesn't fit the mold. So, and, and Kidney was a guy with clearly an explosive temper. He did not keep her locked in with a padlock. I don't argue against that. Um, I, I prove that that's a myth um, because of a muddled uh, press account where it was believed that he uh, locked her in the room and, and kept the key. And he didn't say that. He said when they left in the morning, he would lock the door, but she was able to get into the room and out some way, which means she had at some point made a copy of the key. 
Um, and that's how she was able to get her stuff. But there's never a mention of him locking her in the room. And uh, so, yeah. And she did plan on coming back to him because she left um, her most valued possessions with their next door neighbor because she thought Kidney would throw him out or hawk him. You know what I'm saying? So I don't think she had left Kidney for good. I think this was something that they did on somewhat regularity. And, um, you know, otherwise she wouldn't have left her stuff with the next door neighbor, but with someone else a little further away because she would have had to come back to basically her own house with Kidney to get that stuff. Right. You talk about in your book, the newspaper reports that seemed to, um, the Times in particular, that, that seemed to have been relied on by past Ripper authors, and then those reports from the Times specifically get repeated ad nauseum um, when, they, when they're incorrect. And so, right. so, so it's your examination of, of other newspaper reports that go into much better detail that were for some reason neglected by previous researchers, right? Correct. Right. Okay. Well, not not neglected. They weren't available. Right. Um, there's a lot that was simply not available to anyone in 88, 1988 or 1995. Um, and and there's there's stuff that, as you and I speak, in the next five years, there's going to be new discoveries um, that we don't have available to us right now. That's just and that's that's a good thing. That's what keeps this alive and moving. And and we must keep our minds open about things because there will be new discoveries that challenge what we think we know. Now back to Michael Kidney. You had mentioned um, how he and and people who are students of the case know um, he goes into the police department and he starts. Uh, one one account has him saying that you know he would have been able to catch the killer, um, and another he also uh, requests what he calls a strange detective, right. Um, meaning not local to the area to to um, go out and provide and, and possibly be able to solicit information from a group that you and this harkens back to the bank holiday murders um, in in this in this portion of Ripper Confidential and also when you discuss Albert Backert, the idea that Legrand might have been involved in feeding Kidney some kind of story that a gang of pimps uh, who were local to the area may have been responsible for the the Jack the Ripper murders. Can you talk a little bit about how that goes into play with Michael Kidney's behavior at the police station? Well, I mean, I, it, it, I don't know that it, I think Michael Kidney's behavior at the police station comes down to one thing, and that is he was beside himself with grief and uh, anger and frustration over the murder of Stride. Uh, you know, I think he, in his, you know, he really loved her. Um, but uh, Legrand was riding around, you know, picking up witnesses and talking to them about stuff. And we know from other reports that the uh, Whitechapel um, Vigilance Committee had their, were formulating their own theory about the Ripper murder. And that, that theory involved a small group of, of men um, being the killer. And uh, which, ironically, you know, Sir Charles Warren, <laughs> his own thinking wasn't too far off from that. But uh, what we know about Kidney is that he arrived at the police station in a handsome cab, which was interesting. That's also what uh, Matthew Packer was picked up in by Charles Legrand. We know that Matthew Packer, or that uh, uh, Michael Kidney, 
have somehow and relatively quickly learned of this theory that he wanted the police to investigate. We we do not know what that theory was. He refused to, to say it at the inquest, which was a shame. I would have loved would love to know what theory he had. I'm not saying I would put any stock in it. I'm just curious as to what Kidney had heard that made him think it was a viable theory to Stride's murder because he was someone who knew Liz Stride very well. And if the theory made sense to him, it would be worth us learning, but it doesn't sound like he ever told authorities. So, um, no, it's just speculation on my part that Legrand picked him up, delivered, you know, put this theory in his ear, and then sent him into the police station, the mess that he was. But that, that's all it is. That's not, I don't know if that's anything real important, um, but it, it's something I thought interesting enough to talk about. You know. Well, it does tie in with that Albert Backert section where he, um, you discuss him pointing uh, his finger at a group of thugs. And in a couple other places in your book, I think you have, um, it, it might have been um, kind of shades of the, of the uh, Matthew Packer story of seeing Elizabeth Stride in the com- in being accompanied by a man that you, that you um, that you suggest might have been Legrand speaking to the press. Well, you lost me there. No, I don't put any stock in anything Matthew Packer ever said. I don't think there's any truth. Except for his very first statement to the effect of, I didn't see a thing, I sold, you know, no one. That was true, because that was his actual statement to the police before Legrand came up to him and then create, concocted this whole story of a fake, wit- of a fake suspect with stride buying grapes. Um, but nothing, uh, you know, Packer ever said uh, holds any water. I don't, yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, Legrand definitely interviewed Packer, we know that. Um, um, and it sounds like Packer's story was provided to him by Legrand for whatever reason. Um, you know, Legrand was totally screwing with the uh, investigation into the Stride murder for whatever reason. You know, he just was. He was all over the place. There, there they were with the Batty Street Lodger again. He's just all over the place in that murder. So, yeah, I think it's reasonable he would have sought out someone like Michael Kidney, for, again, for whatever reason. And sent them into the police with a crazy theory. Um, that Because he was already doing that over here, so why wouldn't he be doing that over there? And then if it not him, who, who did in fact take Kidney to the police station in a handsome cab and why? And I don't know that I draw any connection between Albert Backard and Legrand in the book, or if I maybe I did. You know. Well, no, it was just the uh, the idea that um, it was a gang of thugs or pimps involved. Um, I think you suggested that um, Kidney might have been fed the story that that possibly more than one individual would have were, would have been responsible by Legrand, and then Backert um, later on um, kind of says the same thing that that um, oh. we're looking for a gang of toughs here. Well, um, that that was a popular idea at the time. Again, we know that the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, for whom Legrand worked, um, had that theory. Um, and Legrand being their chief detective, it's not unthinkable the theory came from him. And if we put him in a handsome cab with Michael Kidney, then that it just one thing leads to the other. But again, that's supposition. Um, I don't know what Kidney's theory was. I would love to know. Albert Backer reached his own conclusions all on his own, as did Sir Charles Warren, who also believed that, which I talk about in the book, uh, he believed the only solution 
He goes further than anyone else. The only solution is that a secret society was behind the murders. That is Commissioner Sir Charles Warren talking, which is phenomenal when you stop and think about it. Um, and he put that in writing himself. So, um, yeah, that was a popular theory at the time, that it was more than, than one man. Um, but if you look at the medical evidence, which I always return to the medical evidence, um, in no murder do I, uh, do I see evidence that leads me to conclude, man, more than one killer had to have been here. Even in the Tabor murder where there's different weapons, they're not used in such a fashion where we, we, can, we conclude that there had to be more than one killer. We just don't see it. So, but they might be right. There may have been a group of, who knows? You know, they were there, I wasn't. But um, that was a popular theory, but that's all it was. And LeGrand, LeGrand may, I mean, um, if LeGrand killed Stride, then obviously he knew that wasn't the case, and he would spread a, a story that would push, point away from him, as would Albert Backard if he were the, the killer. So those are things you also have to consider when you're dealing with criminals who were pushing themselves into an investigation, you got to look at them and wonder what their real motives are. There was just a part in your book where, About where, Hecker- where, where, yeah. where a reporter, I don't know if this is at the mortuary or what, but where, where a reporter overheard two or three men talking uh, yeah, about Stride being seen, being accompanied by another man, and you had said that this is shades of well, what it, be, it could have eventually became the Matthew Packer story. And, well, and you suggest that maybe the people speaking to the, the, the crowd, I think, it wasn't just speaking to a reporter, but speaking aloud to a, a group of people, could have been Legrand. Does that ring yeah, a bell? Yeah, it sounds like uh, the, the person was listening to, you know, there was rumors going around Burner Street on the murder. There was a crowd there. And, um, and this would have, you know, probably been after, I don't remember, I have to check, I'd have to look at the book myself, but I remember it striking me that what they probably overheard was Legrand out there telling the story um, of, uh, you know, either Packer or, or in fact, that you know, or somebody telling, the, yeah, selling, I don't remember, I'd have to look, honestly, I just, I vaguely remember it, but I don't remember what I said about it, and I don't want to put my foot in my mouth, so. <laughs> okay. The Schwartz uh, section of your book, would you like to go into that and explain the the section on the critical analysis of Israel Schwartz and, and what you think is important for the reader to take out of that? Well, there's, uh, you know, with Israel Schwartz, you know, again, you can't, you can't talk about the stride case. You certainly can't write about it in depth without tackling the subject of Israel Schwartz. Um, he's an enigma. He really is. And we modern-day ripperologists, we are inclined to promote him to, um, you know, the chief witness in the stride, the prime witness in the stride murder. And if we accept stride as a ripper victim, that by default makes him a prime witness in the ripper murders. Problem is, um, the police. I'm not sure they they held that that thought because, yeah, we have the comments from Aberlene and Swanson in October talking about man, this guy is on the up and up and. But then he come November first, eighteen eighty-eight. He absolutely disappears from the written record. Um, witnesses like Joseph Lewindy continue to get alluded to, or mentioned, if not mentioned by name, for a half a century by these people. I mean, just over and over in newspapers, in memoirs, autobiographies. 
nothing on Schwartz. Nothing. And we're talking about including by Metropolitan Police, you know, because theoretically Schwartz should be there, Lewindy. They should be leaning on, like, talking about this guy and blah, blah. Nope, no mention. And that has to, that absolutely has to give us pause. Um, because people like Fanny Mortimer get mentioned. Walter Deuce says he thinks, you know, she saw the Ripper. Matthew Packer gets mentioned a lot. All these other people, no Schwartz. And yet he was undoubtedly, in October 1888, um, their best witness. The Metropolitan Police's absolute best witness. So why, why do we never see any reference to him ever again? Now, I'm saying this, and then, of course, next week someone will d- dig up some reference made to him, which is great. I'm looking forward to it. But as of I, this moment, I've not found any. It's just not there. So that could lead, you know, one possibility is they found out he was a totally dishonest witness or, or, or he was an honest witness, but they identified the, you know, who knows. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, Israel <clears throat> disappears, even if he moved to America, which is very possible because um, the Jews coming to the um, um, working men's club, um, their objective most of the time was to move on to America. Louis Diemschultz moved to America. And uh, so, what you know? Maybe, but that doesn't mean he can't be mentioned. That doesn't. That doesn't mean you know. Why isn't there any reference to him and what he saw? There just is not. So that's one thing I want people to be clear on. Another thing I talk about is my personal belief that he may have had some affiliation with the Burner Street Club, and this may have been part of the reason why they discounted him. Um, and I go into great detail about that. I also discuss how, because a lot of people have taken, I used to talk about this on the boards a lot, how I believed he was with the Burner Street Club, and that he knew them, like William West, uh, individually, he knew them personally, and they ran with that to mean that he was lying to to benefit the Burner Street Club, which I did consider a, a, a possibility at one point. But when you consider Israel Schwartz's evidence, as I do in my book, alongside the evidence of people like Fanny Mortimer and James Brown. If Israel Schwartz made up his story, he is the most lucky liar um, ever. Because he, he, he happened to pick, if by Fanny, Fanny Mortimer's own omission, the streets were dead at that time. And those streets are rarely dead. He happened to pick a, like a five-minute window when the streets were, in fact, dead. Because all they had to do was find a witness to say, oh, no, man, I saw a bunch of people on the street. And then Schwartz is in trouble with the cops for lying to them. That didn't happen. He also described Pipe Man in a, the precise location. Minutes later, James Brown saw Overcoat Man, a very similar-looking man, in the exact same spot. Um, all of this together tells me Israel Schwartz was an honest witness. Honest witnesses can make mistakes, though. Keep that in mind, too. Honest does not mean he was 100% accurate, but it does mean he was honest in what he told. And so I do not believe he was lying to protect anyone. But I also do believe he was, um, he had lived in Burner. This never got discussed before I started writing about it. Um, he lived in Burner Street prior to that day. Where did he live in Burner Street? Well, why not the club? Now, it may have been he lived with Fanny Mortimer. She took in um, Jews as boarders, um, just like him. He could have lived with, uh, but, but he, even if, no matter where he lived, yeah, how would he have avoided going to this club full of young Jewish men like himself? Why would he have avoided it? He wouldn't have. He would have known some of those people. 
But that doesn't mean he lied to protect them at all. Um, and the evidence itself suggests he told the truth. He was an honest witness. James Brown, an honest witness. Fannie Mortimer, definitely an honest witness. And that's why I, 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 I removed Schwartz from the everything must revolve around Schwartz, because it shouldn't. Everything has to revolve around Fannie Mortimer for the sole reason that she provided this evidence of seeing a man with a bag pass to the street at a certain time. And by God, that turned out to be true. That man presented himself and said, that was me, Leon Goldstein. I did come through at that time. So that proves Fannie Mortimer an honest witness. No one else has that luxury. No one else has corroboration. So Fannie Mortimer has to be our center wheel. Everything spins around her. And that's how I wrote those two chapters. Uh, and that puts everything in, into the most, in my opinion, the most accurate perspective that we have to date on exactly what went down in the you know final 15 minutes in Burner Street. And based on that, James Brown becomes the last person to see Stride alive and with her probable killer, who I call Overcoat Man, based on James Brown's description, and Pipe Man, based on Israel Schwartz's. And, and there you go. That's, that's the... And then also with Schwartz, um, another thing I think is important is for years I had a theory um, that the star interview with him was a police plant. And just uh, nothing else to me made as much sense as that they concocted this. They took his story and warped it so that Pipe Man was not described accurately. He was described with a knife. And it looked to me like it was engineered to, to draw one of the two men out to speak to the police. And that's the, you know, because the, they kept him under lock and key. He spoke to no other reporter. It doesn't make sense, the star reporter and no one else could sniff him out so quickly and that Schwartz would sit down and give him this interview. It just didn't make any sense. And then I found on an October 3rd editorial in the Star, appearing only a couple days after their Schwartz interview, where this editor was talking about the police practices of finding gullible reporters and feeding them a story with the perp with this particular purpose. And I thought, oh my God, this this editor um, is basically telling us his suspicions, if not his knowledge, that the um, Swartz interview was, in fact, a police plant. And that would also, in turn, explain why Schwartz would not have been allowed to speak at the inquest. For the, the, the plant, the misinformation in the paper to work, <clears throat> he couldn't stand up at the inquest and give the accurate information, which would you know totally negate that. <clears throat> And cornerbacks would have understood that, and that's precisely why he would have allowed Schwartz to stay out of the inquest. So all the pieces fall into place when you look at that little blurb in the October 3rd issue of the Star that had never been mentioned before. And in fact, that I only noticed in the middle of like writing or, or researching for writing that essay. So do you think that the radio silence that had taken upon all of the uh, police officials in discussing Schwartz um, over the years might have been because they actually were successful in identifying broad-shouldered man, possibly, and, and were able to establish that Schwartz's sighting of the confrontation in uh, Dutfield's yard occurred 10, 10 or 15 minutes or so prior to her being murdered, as opposed to him being like a, the George Hutchison of 
Berner Street and just, uh, you know, a, a complete liar. Well, see, that's the thing is, you know, with George Hutchinson, we have later mentions of him by people. Um, I honestly don't know. I don't know what to make of it because it is such complete and absolute silence um, that doesn't. no other witness gets that kind of silence. It's just mind-blowing to me that um, there is no mention or, or allusion to Israel Swartz after that point. And I don't know if it's because they figured out James Brown was the... Uh, the best witness, or if if I don't know what they figured out, Swartz they was a complete liar, which I don't think was the case. Or if, uh, like you said, they tracked down Pipe Man and BS Man and figured out they had nothing at all to do with the murder. But again, you would still think this would be something interesting for somebody to discuss at some later point in time, and we just don't see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think. You, uh, you, you relate a um, newspaper article, uh, an early newspaper article, which I found interesting, where they actually alluded to Schwartz being chased by a pipe man down the street as as a, a civilian chasing the murderer. Right. Um, which I which I found to be pretty interesting. That, right. Well, I always I also think it's interesting, uh, you know, and I mentioned uh, almost jokingly, what if Israel Schwartz was himself Jack the Ripper? Um, you know, it, 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 you know, it makes sense. It makes a certain amount of sense that, um, if Israel Swartz were the Ripper and he were seen by people that he might present himself as a witness quickly right? in order to negate what these other people so that they could appear in the press as suspects and maybe then not come forward, um, I don't think that's what happened, but you never know. You know these things are interesting, and if and the poli- the police did know Swartz. They we know Aberlene, um, you know, interrogated the hell out of him and and satisfied himself that Swartz was telling the truth. Now Aberlene was also initially satisfied that George Hutchinson was telling the truth, and we know they changed their mind on that. Um, I'm just frustrated that whatever they're, if they change their mind on Swartz, why, you know, couldn't somebody have mentioned it somewhere so that we would know? But because we don't know these things, Swartz does remain a viable, as far as we know, we have to accept him as a viable witness. And I said because his testimony aligns so well with James Brown and, and Mortimer, it makes it very difficult for me to conclude he was that lucky of a liar. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I would be surprised if they tracked down uh, BS Man and Pipe Man and satisfied themselves as to their innocence. I would. I would be surprised of that. Um, but it's possible. We just. But then you would think that would be mentioned somewhere. Yeah. Now, in the talk you gave to the East End Conference earlier this month, mm-hmm. you spoke a bit about Henry Smith, the Chief Superintendent of the City of London Police. Uh-huh. And your thoughts on the opinions he expressed about the Ripper case. In his memoirs, Smith basically says that the Ripper beat them all, meaning the police. But your talk brought out the a kind of a curious relationship between Henry Smith and what Sir Robert Anderson was saying at the same time and it had to do with the seaside home identification. And we have a listener question about that. Um, but if you could, without like having to repeat your whole East End talk, could you kind of go into a little bit of that with us? 
Well, you know, uh, Henry Smith was writing his biography, uh, which would appear in book form, at the time that uh, Sir Robert Anderson's first draft of his biography was appearing in serialized form in issues of Blackwood's magazine. And he had already written his Ripper chapter, Henry Smith had, when um, the... uh, article or the section of Anderson's memoir concerning the Ripper murders was published and he read that and he was like, man, I gotta, you know, I gotta get on this. And so he jumped in and he started writing more in his Ripper book that it would almost be like a, a, an online rant today because, uh, you know, he wrote it quickly while he was impassioned is what it looks like. And he was not happy with what he read from Anderson. He was offended that Anderson would, in his estimation, um, demonize like a large group of Jews um, as accomplices to the Ripper. He didn't. He didn't like that at all. He took issue with a number of things, and so I thought it was interesting that he did not take issue with Anderson's comments about his suspect or his witness. Um, he did not say that never happened or I would have known about it. Um, he did not say, you know, but what he did say, he did go into detail talking about Joseph Lewindy and about, and this was his own witness who you'd think a braggart like Henry Smith would be like, well, this is the man who saw the Ripper and he's a great guy. And, and he does say that <coughs> to an extent, but he says he was an unreliable witness who saw nothing and could never identify the man if shown him again. What it's what the way I'm reading that is he's saying, yeah, sure, Anderson did have a suspect, and there was a witness ID, but the witness in question was useless. Um, nothing, you know, no, he could not identify the Ripper. So he's confirming Lewindy as Anderson's witness, confirming the ID did take place, but saying it meant nothing was absolutely useless. And in fact, Henry Smith's comments about the Ripper beat us all was pointed at Anderson. It's it, and we we isolate that as him. No. That was written as a stab at Anderson. When he says the Ripper beat us all, it's, hey, buddy, you're not special. I don't know who the Ripper was, and neither do you. That's what Anderson was saying to his readers, and more, more particularly to Anderson. Um, Scott Nelson asks a question on this topic, and I'll read that for you. Uh, he said that Tom said that Henry Smith was aware of the police seaside home event with the witness suspect confrontation, as described by Anderson and Swanson, presumably uh, the witness being Lewende. And Scott writes, I have long thought that Smith was totally aware of the whole Poles Jew witness fiasco and believed Lewende was a non-starter, kind of like what you were just saying there, Tom. Right. And that's why he chose to distance himself from the proceeding, at least publicly, until after 1910. But am I reading too much into H.L. Adams' listing in the foreword of his book, that Henry Smith, amongst those who knew the identity of the Ripper, believed Anderson had it right after all. Well, um, yeah, if if Smith believed that, um, we I think we would have seen some evidence of that in, again in the memoir. Oh, uh, you have this is what I was referring to in my talk as reading between the lines. Henry Smith is not going to come out and say something that's going to get him sued for libel any more than Andrew Anderson was on the verge of it and then pulled himself back or his publishers pulled him back. So Henry Smith's not going to want to get sued by Anderson, but he, he did want to get the point across that um, Anderson's witness was useless. Anderson, he, apparently by Henry Smith's estimation, Anderson was not very friendly towards 
uh, the Jews in his handling in writing his biography. And, and all this tells me that Smith believed Anderson did not identify the Ripper. Um, and uh, otherwise, I think we would have seen him say something else. Now, does he know that Anderson didn't identify? I think, uh, I don't, I mean, how could he know that? Because he had to identify a suspect first. And that suspect may have been Jack the Ripper. But what Smith was saying is that the witness ID held no value because Lewindy told him to his face years earlier, I wouldn't know the man again if I saw him. So what Smith is saying is the, the witness ID held, holds no value whatsoever. However, what about the evidence that made this person a suspect in the first place, which had nothing to do with Lewindy? That's the stuff that makes or breaks. So... Um, Smith may have believed that Anderson's suspect was a good suspect and may have been the Ripper, but still beat them all because they couldn't prove it, and even the witness ID was useless because the witness could not have recognized him. Um, so, But I don't get anything out of Smith's own words that he thought Anderson had solved the case, um, and I don't know why H.L. Adams would, would, would write that, Yeah. All right. Um, is there any, any other uh, topics that you'd like to touch upon fr- from the Stride murder that we've that we've missed, Tom? Or Let's see, well, um, you have any other reader questions? Or I have one that that's not related to your book, but oh, what is it? Okay, this is from Magpie, um, the casebook poster, and he would like to know whether, given his involve, given Tom's involvement in film. You have ever considered a documentary about the case? Um, not about uh, no, not really. <laughs> I, I I have considered the idea that when I eventually do my third book, um, that a documentary or a documentary series would be good for that. Um, but that's I mean I've just thought that's all I've thought. I haven't you know made any steps towards doing that. You know, making a documentary. If anyone else is making a documentary and they want to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma to interview me, which none of them ever want to do, by the way, if you have to be in like New York or London. I don't know. Uh, otherwise, they have no interest in what you have to say. Right. But me making my own, uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't write it out. I wouldn't write it off. But I. I don't have a plan for that. Anything else I have to say about the Stride murder? I mean, I. You know me. I'm I'm long-winded as hell. I could talk about this stuff forever. I think it's so. I think we've covered a lot of the salient uh, points. Other than I'll say, on a balance of probability, she's she has to be considered a ripper victim. Um, and is it possible she wasn't? Yes, it is. It's also possible Catherine Eddowes was not a ripper victim. Um, because, uh, as we'll recall, there was actual contemporary medical opinion to that effect, whereas we don't have that with Stride. So, uh, contemporaneously, there was more nays on, uh, against Eddowes than Stride. Um, a lot, all of the reasons, 100% of the reasons you see given for excluding Stride come about just from modern rethinking of the case, um, uh, misunderstanding of the evidence again with the knife and the this and the that I will say the way I believe Stride was murdered is that her killer um, 
joined her in the gateway. He put his arm around her neck and rendered her unconscious using a carotid chokehold, which takes only seconds. He laid her down, and it was dark, and her neck went over the jagged stones of the makeshift um, drainage system that the, the, the club had running alongside the wall. Her neck went over the stones of that. We know that. That's how she was found. Uh, the killer then bent down to kill her, uh, to, to, and he. Uh, the stones were something new he had not come across. She, her, she was not laying flat like all the other victims. So what he had to do was grab her scarf and twist it, and he lifted her neck up off the stones. And that's why the scarf was tight. She was not strangled. He reached his knife under her neck, and with one slice, he slid across. The cut did not go as deep as the other victims because when he cut across he was holding her by the scarf it pushed her neck up he could not get depth plus it hit the scarf and cut through that so she was not cut as deep as the other victims but it was certainly deep enough to murder her as we know with one cut he then simply laid her down um turn around and left the reason the caches were in her hands is because he uh first uh robbed her he pulled his knife and said, give me all your money or I will kill you. That's why the money we know she had on her person from earlier in the evening and any money she gained soliciting was gone from her pocket. Also why the earlier victims had no money and lost their rings is because they were robbed. And when you reach into your deep pockets to pull out money, money is at the very bottom. Any paper will come out in your hand along with that. And he, she held her hand out. He took the money leaving the cashless lodged between her thumb and forefinger precisely where it would have been if she reached in her pocket to grab for change. So the cashless remained in her hand. In the case of Edos, when she reached into her pocket for money, what she came out with was a thimble, which remained by her hand when found. Um, Annie Chapman's remnants, from when she emptied her pockets, were found at her feet. Um, and Polly Nichols, who had nothing, and said she had nothing um, in her pockets, um, had her rings removed from her finger, as did Annie Chapman. So, yes, these women were robbed. Um, and that's why uh, Liz Stride had her cashless. Uh, he then turned her around and strangled her, or I should say gave her the chokehold. That's why she couldn't scream, why she was rendered unconscious so fast. And when you do a crowded chokehold, oftentimes you will end up with bruising on the shoulders, and that's what she had. So, there you go. It's just my idea of what happened, and uh, you know, if someone has a better one, I'm always anxious to hear it. But that's what I think happened to Liz Stride. Which also, if I'm accurate, that means the killer was taller and stronger than her. But that's not surprising. Most of these women were not particularly tall, um, but he would have been taller and stronger than they were to overpower these, you know, rather streetwise women. All right, and uh, well, thank you for that, Tom. Uh, where can um, our listeners find you? if they uh, want to discuss the case further with you? Well, that's not hard. I mean, uh, you know, you can my, if you, you can uh, look at my books. My email address is in there. Um, you can find me um, on my uh, Facebook page. Uh, I'm an admin uh, of Jack the Ripper. Just type in Jack the Ripper, all caps. Look for the one that has Tom Westcott and Neil Bell as admin and moderator and join that page there's a pretender page um that has nothing to do with us so don't be mis don't, don't be misled into that one but yeah jack the ripper on facebook 
Um, Jack the Ripper Books on Facebook. Like that page. That's my personal author page. And you're welcome to send me PMs or notes through that as well as emails. And that's about it. You know, and of course, I'm often uh, I'm checking in and out occasionally on JTR forums and casebook.org. So you can send me PMs through those sites as well. Okay. Well, Tom, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show to discuss the Liz Stride case. It's been a long time, several years, in fact, since Rippercast looked into the individual murders as in-depth as we did today. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad yeah. you had Yet again, I can't believe you're not tired of hearing my, the sound of my voice. <laughs> well, I hope to do more of these revisits to the scene of the crimes in future episodes, hopefully with your participation. So you bet. I don't think we're done with you yet. I hope not. All right. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Hey, thank you, Jonathan. And that was Tom Westcott, author of the books Ripper Confidential and The Bank Holiday Murders. Both books are available on Amazon. And I again thank Tom for coming on to discuss the murder of Elizabeth Stride and the material contained in his book Ripper Confidential. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and Victorian history and crime. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>